This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 73 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and on this episode I am very honored to be joined by Richard Dreyfus the Oscar-winning actor who has been a part of many of our most special movies over the last 40 years. Most famously, Steven Spielberg's Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but also George Lucas's American Graffiti, Ted Kotcheff's The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, Herbert Ross's The Goodbye Girl, Paul Mazursky's Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Barry Levinson's Ten Men, Martin Ritz Nuts, Frank Oz's What About Bob, Rob Reiner's The American President, Stephen Herrick's Mr. Holland's Opus, Oliver Stone's W, and the list goes on. The 68-year-old's most recent standout performance came in February and on television. In a four-part miniseries that aired over two nights on ABC, he played Bernie Madoff, one of the most despicable and hated men in the world, and won raves for making him not just an embodiment of evil, but a fascinating three-dimensional character. The portrayal could bring him an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Miniseries or a Movie. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about how Dreyfus got into the business at a young age and made his way up the food chain in TV guest spots and bit parts in movies before really breaking through with a string of hits in the mid-70s. We talk about what it was like during the shoot of Jaws after it became apparent that the shark wasn't working and what he remembers of the weekend when that movie became Hollywood's first true blockbuster. What it was like in 1978 when he became the youngest man up to that point ever to win the Best Actor Oscar when he was honored for The Goodbye Girl, how, in the years afterwards, he descended into addiction and depression, hitting his low point one night in 1982, why he has always refused to be a part of any sequel to Jaws, even when he's needed the money, and why he left the business for a decade, which ended only recently, to focus on American civics, which has become his great passion in life, especially, he says, with concern as he watches so many Americans gravitate towards Donald Trump. It's a colorful and wide-ranging conversation with a living legend, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Mr. Drivis, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. And You're more than welcome. I know that you don't spend a lot of time in these parts uh, in L.A. Uh, anymore. I think the last time I saw you, had the opportunity to interview you, was at the TCM Classic Film Festival in 2014. Is it a desire to not be in Hollywood, or is it a lure of somewhere else that that has made that the case? That no, not... it was uh, a lure of not wanting to be in L.A. Yeah, I had been living in London, and they had a law change so that when it rained, it actually was steel needles <laughs> that hit you, and so right. I we got out of there. Right, and I wanted to come home to California. I just didn't want to live in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that over the course of our conversation, maybe some of the reasons for why that's the case will come up. But we always like to establish early on, where were you born and raised and and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Brooklyn and raised in Bayside, Queens, 10 blocks away from where Bernie Madoff lived for a while. (laughs) And uh, my father was a lawyer and my mother was a politically active housewife. 
and for you, when you when the family moved to LA, pretty early on, you expressed an interest in acting. Where do you think that came from? Well, it preceded the move, really, and I don't really remember how or when it started, but I always knew this was what I was going to do. And when I was nine. I was in the kitchen with my mother and I said, I'm going to be an actor. And she said, don't just talk about it. (laughs) So what did that mean? So I got up and I walked down to the Jewish Community Center and I auditioned for a play. And I was in a play or a class or working or in a class doing a scene or in a play without stop of more than a week until I was 27. And and during your teenage years, it started to be more TV work, right? With Bewitched and Gunsmoke and stuff like that? Yep. What brought that about? Was it just that casting directors or somebody saw you and liked you and, and hired you? An Great. agent actually saw a performance I gave it at the school and called. And um, he was my first agent, and he was fantastic. Yeah. He said, actually, that he would not send me out until I graduated from high school. But he sent me out the next week, and I got the part. So (laughs) we were off and running. You have said that even during your early years as an actor, a time when most young actors lack confidence, you never had any doubt that you would become a star. Where do you think that confidence came from? Uh, I don't know really where it came from. It was the fact of my life. I felt like I had a nuclear pellet in my chest and um, there was no doubt which which allowed me to be patient and to enjoy I loved being an unemployed actor in LA as a matter of fact I taught a class in it at uh, in Hollywood how to be an unemployed actor in LA and I interviewed agents casting directors showrunners like that some of whom will never speak to me again because I told 600 kids to call them. Right. <laughs> I would say, you know, we, all of my friends were actors, and I would say that I was going to be a star, and someone would say, oh, really? <laughs> and I loved that. Yeah. Because it fed me. I realized years later that I was most comfortable on the hunt, not being a star, but trying to get to be a star mm-hmm. and there's a picture of Kevin Spacey on uh, on the wall here mm-hmm. and Kevin is someone who I know and he had something similar to my confidence but being a star he has all the confidence in the world I didn't my confidence was about getting there right and so I've just I figured out in retrospect that I've managed to lose it so I could regain it so I could lose it and then I could regain it (laughs) now was the dream at the outset to be a movie star or would you have been just as happy if your career was in television or Broadway or whatever well I always considered that Broadway and features were were part of the same part of my life and I've always done theater always and uh, television I hadn't considered until I did it Uh until I did it with my own show as an ep- as a guest star on an episodic thing it's pretty silly <laughs> but once you can take a character all through the season then you realize it's the one uh, the only of the art forms 
where you can change the ending. You can change the character. He can morph into something. The showrunner can come in and say, let's make him a transgender, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they do. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's exciting about doing television. Unfortunately, it's run by other people. I know a little bit about why you feel that way in con connection with recent events, but first, the first movie opportunity, one of the first was The Graduate, right? Yeah, but I didn't consider it very important. I mean, I knew it was one day's work, you know. What I had done, though, was that every kid in the United States wanted that part that Dustin got. <laughs> so we all right. went through this gauntlet of casting directors, and I wanted to pass them all and get to Mike. And I was supposed to see Mike on a given Wednesday. It was Mike Nichols. Yeah. yeah. And uh, on Tuesday night, I was at a three-camera screening of some friend of mine's show. And they came up to me and they said, Mike had to fly to New York. He's looking at an actor named Dustin Hoffman. And as soon as I heard the name, I swear to God, the wind of inevitability went right <laughs> up the back of my neck. And I knew. Is that because you knew Dustin? No. You just never heard of him. gut feeling. Yeah. Well, was the casting director, I know that later on in your life, Lynn Stallmaster factored in, but was he also involved with The Graduate? No, no. I was a, there were two great casting directors, Milt Hammerman and Lynn. I was a Milt Hammerman boy. But there is a wonderful story. One day I was driving down Vine Street, and I passed the bus station, and there was a guy standing there with a piece of luggage in his hand, and he was a dwarf. And I pulled over and I said, do you need a ride? And he said, I don't know where I'm going. I said, get in the car. And so I took him to some place down lower than uh, Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And we were talking, and he was just looking for a job in Hollywood. And I wished him well. And he got out. And some, had to be three years later, when I went up for American Graffiti, the first casting director was him. No way. <laughs> yeah. And and he realized you were the oh, same yeah. guy? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I mean, great. That's crazy. That's how I passed the first level. For you, the one that I think you considered your, I imagine it seemed like a big break at the time, was after missing out on Catch-22, you got the Canadian Catch-22. Can you explain what that was all about and why? Well, yeah. First of all, I did Catch-22. As a series for ABC, and Joseph Heller has a very specific structure of comedy, and that's what I agreed to. Then the minute we started to shoot, the rewrites came down, making it like any other, and so I went crazy. I didn't know how to have authority, and one day when we were shooting in the desert, the unit manager, everyone was drunk in the room, <laughs> but the unit manager called me over and he said, listen to me. You have more power than anybody else in this production, but nobody is going to hand it to you. And I was just too young to understand what he meant and what I should do. So it was a disaster. But at the end of it, and it didn't get bought, Lynn Stallmaster brought me into the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and introduced me to Ted Kotcheff, who was directing... The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, mm -hmm. which was the 
Catcher in the Rye of Canada. And I, you know, we had a nice meeting and he gave me the script. And I'm walking down the steps and I'm looking at what is clearly the greatest role for a young actor in the world. Mm -hmm. And I heard a voice, Richard. And I looked and there was an ABC lawyer and he came over to me and he said, we have another shot. I said, what do you mean? He said, we have another shot with Catch-22. There's this window of opportunity and blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him and I said, my agent's name is Meyer Mishkin, 2745261. My lawyer's name is Bernie Donenfeld, 2789191. I'll go to jail before right. I do that role. Because my future was right there. Yeah, you saw it. It was easy. And yet, once the movie was made, Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, which people today consider one of your great performances, you had doubts about that, right? Yeah. Why? Because I'd never seen myself, you know, a 40-foot face. I'd never seen that, and I I was just overwhelmed by it, and all I saw was what I didn't do. It took me years to see that performance in some kind of mental balance. And also, I have to admit that when I was doing TV, which I did for 11 years, I was pretty terrible. <laughs> I was interesting, but I was terrible. I mean, I was overacting and doing that TV thing, you know, that TV thing. Over, and it was hideous. And then the first time I got a, a really good film part, I was a much better actor. And I realized that I had had the perfect amount of denial <laughs> so that when I was bad, I didn't know it. Right. And then you... <laughs> and then I got better. But even before you saw the movie, Dirty Kravitz, you had doubts about how you had done, right? You go off now. Well, let's, let's first set the scene of before that comes out, you get a call from, I think, Cindy Williams, right? To go and do another little movie, which people may have heard no, of. No, 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 not, not to go and do it, but to go and see it. To go We'd and... already done it. I see. And so Cindy that... said, you want to be a star? Yeah. And I said, yes. And she said, well, get your ass down to Joe Allen's in New York, because if you did, they'd give you a standing ovation. Because she had seen... The movie had come out. Okay. And in the meantime, though, so that was... Dude Kravitz is 1974, almost overlapping with American Graffiti, right? It should come out in 73. 73. What was the impact of the release of American Graffiti before Duty Kravitz? I couldn't tell you because I was shooting Duty. So that's what, you didn't feel it. I didn't feel it. But I knew that the accumulation of American Graffiti and Duty Kravitz and Jaws, by the end of that, I was a star. Right. Now, jumping back, because we, we do have to give a little attention to American Graffiti. It's it, At the time, George Lucas, who directed it, was 28. Could you tell that he was a talented guy? This is well before the stuff that made him world famous. Well, actually, I had seen THX 1138 because I was a conscientious objector during Vietnam, and I was working at L.A. County Hospital in the basement. Mm -hmm. And they had been shooting gangland style, you know, through in the corridors of the basement. And so I had some inkling, and then I saw the film, which was brilliant. Mm -hmm. So I knew. You were signing up to work with a talented yeah. guy. And George is the only guy I've ever worked for, ever, 
who doesn't like directing. We would kind of meet in front of the car and we'd rehearse the scene and then he'd come over to us and he'd say, is that the way you want to do it? <laughs> and I would say, well, someone would say, right. yeah. And he'd go, okay, that's cool. Bring the camera here, <laughs> camera here. Or else he would sit in the car when everyone was freezing and he had this parka. <laughs> we all envied his parka. But he, literally, George directing bored him. That's why he did the first Star Wars and then that was it. Now, is there one scene in particular, I suspect I may know the answer to this, but is there one scene in particular from American Graffiti that you are asked about more than the others, perhaps involving a, a car? Oh, you mean the, <laughs> the blonde girl? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there... The odd thing is that she and I never met. That was all done separately. You know, she was shot separately. So there was so no... So you're just reacting to nothing. Yeah. That's great. That's, yeah. that's like I had remember this. Remember in Casablanca, there's the scene where... Humphrey Bogart, you know, the, the the band is looking up for permission to start playing the, you know, national anthem. And, and so they look up and he gives this very solemn nod. And apparently he had no idea what he was nodding to, but everybody talks about the scene. So coming back now to this period post-American Graffiti, 73, Duty Kravitz, 74, then 75, the big kahuna Jaws. But you didn't feel going into it that it was going to be anything that special, right? No, no. I didn't feel coming out of shooting it that it was going to work because okay. the shark never worked. Right. You know, the shark would come out of the water and go... Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you had gone into it because Spielberg was a buddy of Lucas and you knew him through Lucas? or had No. It? What happened was I turned him down. I said that it was going to be a bitch to shoot and I was too lazy. <laughs> and... Then I saw Duty Kravitz, and I so responded negatively that I called Stephen and begged him for the part. You thought you needed it now. I thought, oh, <laughs> if, if anyone sees Duty Kravitz, I'll never work. <laughs> so you go to Martha's Vineyard, and which is not the worst place to be stuck for a couple of months because the shark's not working, right? But So it's you, Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Spielberg, and as this two months passed along and things were not going well what were you guys doing were you upset at having to be there or was it not such a bad thing to just be hanging you know, out there are more stories about that shoot mm -hmm. than any other shoot mm -hmm. in the world not least because it was the first film ever attempted on the atlantic ocean for real mm -hmm. not in a tank mm -hmm. i don't think people knew that <laughs> I, I, I but aside from the waiting and we had to wait Every day, we had to wait for something. Right. And the waiting was, we're supposed to be out in the mid-ocean, and then a sailboat would get, boop, come across the screen. <laughs> and we'd have to wait for it to leave, right. hoping that another one would not. Just a slow, slow process. Slow process. And so we just adapted to it. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I believe that at a certain point, when Duty Kravitz started to reach more people, you became a more popular guy on the water, right? There was uh, initially, you weren't sure why all these people were taking an interest in you. Is that right? It wasn't that. Roy had an argument about the billing. And one night I just said to him, well, who cares? What do you care about this? And he said, why do you not care? Mm -hmm. You got the same billing as I do. I said, I do? <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. 
And then what happened was that this Canadian company that had made Diddy Kravitz, somehow, by selling it to Paramount or something, all of a sudden in the New York Times, there was a two-pager, cost a fortune. And all of a sudden, girls were coming out in safety boats. <laughs> to come check you to out. To come flirt with me. <laughs> and How Stephen, did that go over with the others? Well, Stephen said, what is going on here with all these girls? And I said... Stephen, if you had a 40-foot face, you'd be getting the attention, too. <laughs> and meanwhile, he's just trying to get the freaking shark to, to operate. Right. So this was obviously, this was the first blockbuster in Hollywood history. Now, the numbers today sound quaint. Seven million, I think, on the opening weekend. But just part of it was just opening wide was not a thing like it is today. Movie's a huge hit. When did you, though, and your castmates first know that you had something really big? I went to the distributor, the exhibitor um, screening at the t- uh, Rivoli Theater in New York, and I went up to the balcony, and 15 minutes into the movie, I forgot that I had shot it, <laughs> and I was as frightened as anybody else, and I was so overwhelmed by the storytelling. What happened with Stephen was this. He had started to make a film when he was the uncrowned king of Hollywood. Everyone knew he was going to be king, but he hadn't been crowned yet. So he was a boy, and I saw him turn into a man. I saw him never buckle under pressure from the studio, and they pressured him every day. And he had to reconceive the entire film in his head because the shark never worked. Mm -hmm. And we ate dinner together every night, a whole bunch of us. Mm -hmm. I, at one, there was a tribute to Stephen some couple of years later, Mm -hmm. and I wrote out this thing about watching Stephen become a man. And and there was no question at the end of that film that this was a formidable human being who had done this. And there's a famous story about this Boston theater owner who got the rates from Universal and said, hell will freeze before I pay those rates. <laughs> and then he saw the film and he said, hell froze in my theater <laughs> yesterday. I had the good fortune to interview Roy Scheider before he passed away in 2008, I think is when he passed away. And his memory of that opening, of the first time you guys saw it, he said, quote, I remember standing on the sidewalk and Dreyfus, who was our biggest detractor at that time, came out and leaped into my arms like a bad little Marx brother. And he was bellowing, we're a hit, we're a hit, we're a hit. And so that was when I figured, well, maybe we've really got something here. So uh, he and, and Robert Shaw, who's also sadly passed away, he was somebody that I think you're saying, you see now sort of the reasons, I guess, for it, but he was not the most fun guy to work with at the time, right? Robert Shaw. No, he was. But didn't he bust your chops a lot? You know, this is a story that has turned into history, Mm -hmm. and it's all untrue. All right, no, let's set the record straight. Robert was the largest personality I had ever met. He did, in fact, have my number. When we were in private, he was the biggest gentleman, the nicest, the kindest, the sweetest, and I can't say enough. And then we'd walk toward the set, and he became this 
Mr. Hyde character, <laughs> and he would aim most of his barbs at me. And he got me to the point where I didn't believe that I could do things that I knew that I could do. Like he said, you can't do 25 sit-ups or push-ups. And I, I couldn't. But I could. I couldn't. And then he said one day, you, you couldn't jump off the top of this boat into the water. Well, I knew I could do that. Right. But I couldn't. So he had my number. Why would he do that, though? I don't know. Just a little kind of twisted thing. And he liked to, maybe you gave a reaction. Could he get a rise out of you? Well, one day, yeah. He was going down the ladder holding his glass of bourbon in his hand. And he said, Richard, help me out, will you? I said, you really want me to help you out? He said, yeah. I took his glass of bourbon and I threw it into the water. <laughs> and every drinker right. on, the, on the crew went, ooh. <laughs> he then, we were shooting a scene with me and Roy at the cleats in the water, and the water's all over the place. And Robert took the fire hose behind the camera and aimed it at my face. <laughs> that was the only day I lost my sense of humor. <laughs> so what was the impact of Jaws on your career after, in those immediate years right afterwards? Did it change things markedly? Yeah, but I didn't really know how to capitalize on it. It was a period, I guess, I think... I think someone said to me one day that I was, at that moment, um, the biggest moneymaker in Hollywood, that I had been responsible for. But I immediately said, wait a minute, these are Stevens' films. These are not my films. And that when you say films in plural, that's because just two years later was Close Encounters. Encounters. And to talk about being big moneymaker, that was the same year as The Goodbye Girl. So let's let's... Talk a little bit about that. With Close Encounters, you lobbied Stephen to be in that one. Why did you want to be in that I one? I didn't lobby him. I lied, cheated, <laughs> and bad-mouthed every actor in Hollywood right. to get the part. Why did you want it so badly? Because the idea of that film was the most noble idea I'd ever heard. It was the first time that anyone had ever written a script that said, we have nothing to fear from looking up. We have nothing to fear from aliens. And I thought that was just an extraordinary message. And so it was originally written for someone like like Gene Hackman, a, a lifer in, in the military. And I was part of the meetings on, on Martha's Vineyard that changed that next film and then I just would walk by Stephen's office and I would say um, Al Pacino's crazy <laughs> or um, Robert De Niro has no sense of humor <laughs> and I would just do disparage that I just disparage right. everybody <laughs> and finally one day I walked over to his office and I said Stephen you need a child and he looked up and said you got the part because that was a critical part of that guy's personality. He had to have a childlike view of the world in order for him to be accepted and part of that whole 
weirdness. And you could do a child because you just you're just a, a because kind I of am eccentric character. I right? am a <laughs> child, and because I knew how to do this. I don't know if it'll register, but at that time in my life, I was hired because I could go <laughs> looking up <laughs> and. And I would say $35,000. Right. Now, let's clarify what you mean by that. Because in both, you said to Stephen, I'm very happy to be in Jaws and Close Encounters, but, but can I have something to do other than stare and wonder? No, I never did say that. No. Stephen actually <laughs> said to me one day when we were shooting, when we were right. location scouting for, for um, Close Encounters, he said, can I ask you a question about Jaws? I said, sure. He said, you remember all those days that the shark didn't work? And I said, yeah. And there was nothing to look at. Yeah. And I made you say things like, hey, look at that shark. <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, do you ever feel stupid? <laughs> I said, what are you saying? Right. And he said, I just felt so stupid asking you to say that. I said, Stephen, you're an authority figure. Don't ever say this again. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, my God. Well, the Goodbye Girls may be less famous and less widely seen than the other ones that we've talked about but it's a great performance out of you and great everybody you know really made great contributions and you've called it one of the happiest working experiences that you've had what was it about this part for which you then became the youngest person ever to win the best actor oscar what was it that made it so special when you have neil simon the greatest comedy writer in america and his wife at the time marcia mason and the producer of all time, Ray Stark, all sitting there saying, please do this, please do this. And I'm being picky and saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I heard this little voice inside my head say, Richard, don't be such a schmuck <laughs> and do the part. And right. then the part was actually, it had been a project called Bogart Slept Here. And it was really the story of what happened to Dustin Hoffman when he became a star. And it didn't work. And De Niro was playing it and was fired. Mike Nichols was directing it. He left the project. And within a short time, everyone in town was telling me that I was going to do it. So I called the casting guy and I said, do you want to talk to me for any reason? <laughs> and he said, no. And I hung up. And, right. that. and about a year later... There was a reading of that piece. And I knew halfway through that script that it didn't work. And I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't matter if a, a movie star loses his family, you know, gets his legs cut off, he's in Katrina, he's a pedophile. It doesn't matter. People say, ah, oh, but he's a movie star. And they can't really empathize. And so it didn't work. But Neil said that day, I have an idea. And he's, he decided to tell the prequel of how we met and I started my career. So just to, for people who haven't yet but need to go and catch up on seeing this movie, the premise is basically that you're the struggling actor who ends up through a, through a misunderstanding sharing an apartment with a or with a woman who refuses to vacate it and her young, precocious daughter. And what starts out as clashing heads becomes, obviously, uh, something more. 
you've said, I think, when we spoke last time, that the scene that you're proudest of in that movie was when you go and deal with the sick child played by Quinn Cummings, who became, I think, the youngest actress ever to receive an Oscar nomination, or certainly one of them at that time. Can you set that scene? Even if somebody hasn't seen it, I think they'll be able to appreciate why it was such a great scene. I was, first of all, working for Herb Ross, and Herb Ross was the only true gentleman I'd ever worked with. He was amazing. And we had shot the scene where I was already crazy um, (laughs) talking to Marsha, and then she tells me that Quinn is sick, and I go nuts. So we shot that, and he started to move in for coverage. And I went over to him, and I said, let me do it one more time. Let me do it one more time. I just have this idea. And he said, okay. And we did the scene again my way. And he walked over to me and he said, no coverage. And that was the greatest compliment I'd ever received to this day. Because you just knocked it out. Because it was a home run and they didn't have to cover it. It's in the film as we shot it. And it was this, just this yank up of energy that made him nuts. And it was great. So you get the Oscar nomination. I think first time you were nominated. You now go to the show. And you went in feeling what about your prospects of winning? I mean, you were up against some terrific competition. How did you think your, How did you think the night was going to go? I was going to win. You knew? I knew it. I knew it the moment I heard... My agent called and said, you've been nominated for Best Actor. And I went crazy. And then I said, who else has been nominated? And he said, Richard Burton, Marcello Mastriani, Woody Allen, and John Travolta. And I said, I'm going to win. <laughs> and, and I had made a lot of money doing this. I had bet against myself <laughs> about Duty Kravitz right. when people said I would be nominated. I made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then I made a lot of money saying that I would win the Academy Award. I made a lot of money. And then I won a lot more money the next year by saying this. I would say to someone, quick, tell me, who won Best Actor last year? <laughs> and the answer was me. Right. But no one remembers. No one. <laughs> and that's to tell you how much fun that one night is, and that's all it is. And the next night you were back on the stage, right? Yeah. And uh, same kind of thing, right? Well, I said to the other actors, look, you know, when I make my entrance, the audience is going to applaud, so just... And the audience didn't. (laughs) And so every actor in the show managed to find a way on stage to come by me and go, oh, yeah, he's going to fun. (laughs) Big shot. Um, And we should just note that for 25 years, you held that record, youngest Best Actor winner. Then Adrian Brody came along. Yeah, but I'll tell you, that was never mentioned until Adrian was nominated. So you didn't know. I didn't know. It wasn't a factor in anything. Amazing. Well... So you mentioned earlier in this conversation that when you're when you're on top, sometimes that's that's less gratifying to you than when you're clawing. And obviously, at this point, you were on top, and you've described what happened at that point that it, it built towards a point in 1982, a few years after that, I guess, you know, four years after the Oscar win, when things had really devolved and you were not in a good place. 
after having spent those years being a low-down, dirty dog and drugging myself into oblivion, I then had a car accident on Coldwater Canyon and uh, was arrested and, and put in Cedar sinai And when I woke up the next day, I called my dealer, who said, you're taking too much. I'm not going to give you any. My dealer. Unbelievable. <laughs> right. And um, May I ask what it was that you were taking? I was taking everything. Everything, yeah. If, if I could get high on this, I would take it. <laughs> um, but the miracle was this, and this is a true story. Mm-hmm. From the moment I woke up in, the, in, in hospital, I, I had a picture in my mind of a little girl, and I didn't know why or who she was. No matter what I was talking about, I could see this little girl. And the next day, I, she was still there, and I could see her more clearly. She was wearing a pink and white dress. And the next day, she was wearing ballet shoes with little white socks and... Um, crinoline and the next day she was wearing glass and I I didn't know why I was having this but I tried desperately to deny in the world what was happening what was about to happen to me you know under arrest and whatever and and then one day it stopped one day I had I was in an incident with a girl who let me see behind her eyes how much she hated herself. Because of drugs. Yeah. And when I saw that, I quit. I, tur- I went out the back door, got into my driven car. That was the only reality I had. I just said I wouldn't drive. And um, for those 10 days, I... I had been trying to deny it. And that night was the last night. And that night, which is what you call your sobriety date, Mm -hmm. was November 19th. And the accident happened on November 9th. So 10 days. And then I stopped. And that was 1982. My daughter was born on November 19th, 1983. Wow. And it took me almost 15 years to see that she was the girl. And I had seen her before she was born, before I was married. Before anything. Incredible story. And then one day I went to a a 12-step meeting with a very dear friend who trying to start to get sober and they give these chips and all of a sudden I realized I'm a 30 year man I was sober for 30 years so they gave me this really nice gold thing strong you know heavy and we left and about two days later I said to myself Richard you got to be ruthlessly honest with yourself. You're not 30 years sober. There had been times, because I've had 
terrible problems with my back mm -hmm. that I've had painkillers and there have been times when I over when I took more than I should have mm -hmm. and so I have every intention of going back to that AA meeting and giving back the chip but you know you got it you deserve a lot of credit for stopping what was the issue that brought you there in the first place and all and, of it and not only that but then going back and having this great time in your career since then. I mean, let's, in the late 80s and onwards, down and out in Beverly Hills, nuts, Tin Men, What About Bob, re-teamed with Spielberg for Always, which must have been fun, Stand By Me, the American President, W, who I know was not high on your list of, of favorite people, but what, one thing that I give you a lot of credit for also, and I think there's a bit of a story here, is that inevitably, as has happens all the time here in Hollywood after a movie's a big hit, people want sequels. And you have never really, no matter what, given into those, whether it was for Jaws 2 in 78 or more American Graffiti in 79, not only because they were weaker scripts, I think, but you had other reasons as well, right? Well, here's the story, okay? Robert Shaw one of the great actors and one of the great writers, mm -hmm. Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfuss, were all paid the same amount of money for acting in Jaws. And we just prorated the salary for the six months that it went on. Mm -hmm. And then we made more money than any film in history. And they did not give us any bonus. This is David Brown, the producer. Yeah, yeah. David and, and, and uh, Richard Zanuck did not give us any bonus. And then they they said, we want you to do the sequel. And I said, no, because I'd read it. Right. <laughs> and they said, oh, come on, we want you to do the sequel. I said, okay, I'll do it for a million dollars and Steven Spielberg directing. Mm -hmm. Click. <laughs> and many years later, David Brown said to me, why didn't you do the sequel? And I said, why didn't you give us Latvia? He said, what? I said, you didn't bonus us at all. And you could have given us Latvia, Lithuania. <laughs> you could have given us France, right. for God's sakes. But you didn't. And then... Because he had all of Europe, you're saying, right? Like, Well, he just didn't think we deserved it, I right, guess. Right, And so then Universal would say, come fly out to Martha's Vineyard. We're, gonna, we're doing a redo opening of the movie. And I would say, are you going to pay me anything? No. I said, well, why would I do that so that you could make more money? <laughs> and so my name is Manure at Universal. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Right. Well, but you contrasted that with the way you were traded on American Graffiti, which was By a George lot better. Lucas. Right. What happened with that one? Well... George Lucas is a unique person in many ways, but without anyone asking him, and he did it before the film came out, he did it purely as a, as an, as a gesture. He took one of his whole points, and he divided it up among the ten actors of American Graffiti. I've made more money off of that little slice of a, of a point than I've made on any other film. And he did the same thing for Star Wars, and he made everyone a millionaire. And that 
is the gesture of a gentleman because he didn't wait for the reviews or the, you know, the money. Mm -hmm. He just did it. Mm -hmm. And you share with me. And I, I've never uh, known of anyone who did anything that generous. That's great. Incidentally, is it true that you met with George on Star about Star Wars at any point? Is there anything? Because, I mean, I will just I'll tell you where I'm getting this from. Harrison Ford did an interview with him maybe two years ago, and he said he was working as, like, a carpenter on Francis Ford Coppola's office, and he had been told that uh, supposedly all of you guys who had been in American Graffiti were told we're not going to... Don't even ask about Star Wars. It's going to be a fresh cast. George wants a fresh cast. And then he says he's hammering away on something at at Coppola's office and sees you walk in with Lucas. So he's at that point, he started to panic a little bit. So were you there to meet with Lucas? No, no. no. I was there just to say hello. Okay. <laughs> and I knew that George was really tired. Right. We both had beards. Right. And I said, why don't you let, let me be you? Right. <laughs> so George and Brian De Palma sat on the couch and I was sitting in behind the desk. And the next actor that came in was Nick Nolte. <laughs> and Nick Nol and I said to Nick, Hi. So tell us what you've done. Right. And he did and he started to respond and and he started to pick up on something weird in the room <laughs> because George was laughing and Brian was right. laughing. And finally we told we him talk. the truth. And yes, Harrison was outside on a ladder <laughs> pounding this you know, he he's a very good carpenter. Right. And he got the part. George <laughs> but, just realized he had, it, he had it sitting in front of him. So funny. Why was it that for a number of fairly recent years, there was about a 10-year period when you basically retired from the business, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what brought that about? I had started asking my friends, how many times do you have to win in order to win? <laughs> I, I guess I, it got a little stale for me. And... I was truly desperately afraid of the fact that I, as a parent, could not give to my children the American dream. I could not say, I'm going to give you a better America than the one I got from my parents. That was no longer possible. And, and I began to realize that it was because of a foundational crime and no one was paying attention. And that was that civics and the birth tale of America and its place in, in history, in the context of history itself, was no longer being taught to kids. And so I... Uh, I did a Broadway show, which was kind of the completion of a of a circle of mm -hmm. things I'd wanted to do. And then I was asked to open the producers in London. And I told Mel, I can't sing or dance. And he said, oh, who cares? You're funny. And so six days before the first preview audience, I was fired because I didn't sing or dance. <laughs> so, but I was in London, and that was a Friday night. I had a bad Saturday, and on Sunday, I was okay. 
And that night, I made this announcement to this group that I was speaking in front of that I wasn't going to do the show and that Nathan Lane was going to do the show. And, but I was going to stay anyway. And I said, I'm trolling for work. <laughs> and they said, like, what? And I said, well, I could write articles. I could speak. I could make speeches. I could study. And I did exactly that. I made it. I wrote an article in the Sunday Times magazine about torture. Mm -hmm. I did debates and speeches. And then Oxford asked me to submit a project to them. And if they liked it, I could become a senior research advisor. And I had already done, in 1987, a, f a show called Funny You Don't Look 200, <laughs> which was an hour special with Whoopi Goldberg and Donald Duck and others, Bill Maher. Right. And it was very funny and very substantive mm -hmm. about the Constitution. And so I told you know, Oxford, I wanted, I want to study the damage being done by the absence of the teaching of civics, and they ex they accepted. Now you, where does that curiosity come from? You had not, because of your career taking off, gone to college yourself, right? Right. So this was this almost more, uh, almost equally about educating yourself. Well, I was, I had been a self-educated person mm -hmm. for years. Mm -hmm. I. I never went to college, which, you know, didn't bother me at the time, but I would look back and think, boy, I should have done that. And um, and then I became what is known as an autodidact. You know, I was a self-educating person, and I was deeply, deeply involved in history and science reading. And there was a time when you... I could tell you every single thing about the Mongols <laughs> or Napoleon or the ancient regime of Europe. And then it all came down to what people did not realize was the most extraordinary political miracle in history, which was the establishment of this country. And... It started the largest mass movement of people, which has never stopped. People don't wake up and say, I can't wait to get to Norway. <laughs> they say, I can't wait to get to America. Right. And we are the land of opportunity and freedom. And people don't realize that until us, and since Mesopotamia, all the humans had to look forward to was punishment. They were punished if they learned something, they chopped off their fingers or their nose, if they learned how to read or write, or they killed you. And that was basically uh, the same punishment for 7,000 years until us. And we said, if you can get here, if you can make the journey, everything you've always wanted, we give you for free the right to speak, the right to talk, the right to learn, the right to, to worship. We give it all to you. Opportunity. Do you know that up until us, you couldn't move around. You had to ask permission. And you couldn't learn another trade. And 
people were being punished. And it was like prison for 7,000 years until we said, come here. And it took about 100 years for people to really understand that it was real. And then there was the what they call the, the uprisings of 1848, which was just people in Europe saying, we want what they got. And the Habsburgs killed everybody. <laughs> and the ones that didn't die came here. And they kept coming. The, first the Germans, then the Russians, the Jews, the Italians, and they never stopped. To the frustration of Donald Trump. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. I knew that name would come. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. And you're, you've always been a politically active guy. So before I hit our, our final phase here of, of some very important stuff about Madoff, I have to ask you, because we are living in an interesting time in this country, what's your general assessment of things? Well, um, because we do not teach civics, which means we do not teach civility, and we do not teach um, behavior, you know, acceptable behavior, I don't uh, argue with Donald Trump's policies or politics. They change and morph like any other public official. What I object to in a, in a, in a strong way is, the, is his absence of common decency. And what he did in the, in the circus vaudeville of those Republican debates <laughs> was mean-spirited bullying. And he looked and acted just like that. And he, and he said things about his fellow uh, presidential candidates, which were beyond the pale. And I think that if you reduced it down to a simple question, would you let someone like that seek the hand of your daughter in marriage. That's it. And if you say yes, okay, there's nothing I can do about it. But if you say no, and I think most people would say no because of his behavior, mm -hmm. then I don't think we should award him mm -hmm. with the most powerful office on the face of the earth. I'm with you, and interestingly, I guess uh, in terms of the marriage question, it seems like many Americans are because he's had to go outside the country for his wives. So, <laughs> well, I did too. So, right. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but just uh, in this case. In, so, in, in his case, right. Um, the media, which had been bought and paid for for years, did not really, uh, as Malcolm X would say, chickens were coming home to roost. <laughs> And when he started in on this thing about they're going to design a convention to keep me out, the media has an obligation to correct historical fact. And there's a historical fact involved here, which 
he was not saying. And that is, there's a very old method in conventions. You can be on the first ballot, you can have all, all of the votes in the world minus one. And if you are minus one, you got to go to a second ballot. <laughs> and that's all they said, right. that that would be, you know. And, and he made everyone believe that it was an anti-Trump conspiracy. And neither Fox, CNN, or MSNBC corrected that historical fact. Because and that's because they're interested in the ad dollars right. and the theater of politics. And also, I mean, how, how many things are there to correct? I mean, he says they all, they're trying to take away his country, too. Who's they? But yeah. anyway. Um, but, to, but even uh, what I'm saying is yeah. not to be partisan. Yeah. They, each of these uh, news organizations could have corrected this historical f- fiction and said the fact. And it would have undercut a lot of the uh, of people's outrage at being at having their Donald treated this way. <laughs> and the fact is, this outrage that is being felt across this country and across the world is deserved because the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have not delivered to their base mm-hmm. anything for years and years and years and years. And everyone has been shortchanged. They have been mortgaged out. They've been thrown out. They've been thrown into poverty. And their anger is absolutely justified. The problem is by not teaching civic authority and telling them that they had the right because they're the sovereign power in this country, they have the right to say, stop it, hold it. There's lots of ways to do that. And instead of that, we actually experience America like someone driving by a a car accident on the freeway. We think, oh, that's terrible, and we drive right by, we don't have anything to do with it. And the fact is, we have everything to do with it. So it's going to take... 20 years, and hopefully that won't include uh, a Trump administration. Right. Well, you talk about people feeling disenfranchised. I can't imagine a worse feeling than having invested your money with somebody, and then all of a sudden you find out it's gone. And that is the situation that Bernie Madoff caused for a lot of people. So as an observer of just current events, You'd obviously followed what was going on. Now the opportunity came along to play this guy in the ABC miniseries, four-parter, aired over two nights in February, called Madoff. What was, how did that all come about, and were you excited, maybe to a degree more than other things recently, to get to dive into this part? Well, one thing was that I, I had no intention of coming back to work. I, I had intention of taking my wife on river cruises <laughs> and um, there was a family crisis problem and there was no money. And um, I had to go back to work because I literally did not know how to feed my family unless I was acting. And so I started all over again with one day parts and two day parts and stuff like that. 
And so I made my way back to Madoff. And in that way, Madoff was very important. And the other side of it was I, I wanted to play him because when I first heard the story, there was parts of me that empathized with him. And then I read Marie Brenner's articles in Vanity Fair, and I could never empathize with that sociopathic son of a bitch ever. Mm-hmm. And I had no interest in talking to him, and there was nothing that he could, I could learn from him. Do you generally have to find something you can relate to in a character in order to play that character well, or, or can you do somebody who's completely removed from your experience, like this guy? Well, actually, no one is removed from my experience. I used to say that there's a little bit of Cheney in all of us, <laughs> and there is, and there's a little bit of Madoff in all of us, and we just have to find it and build on it, but... Um, we've all scammed someone or cheated someone, whether emotionally or financially. We've all taken credit when we didn't deserve it. We've all, you know, been... I say to young actors that inside each of us is Hitler and Jesus. And you got to find the right elements and in traffic on the freeway you can always see it <laughs> because you you're driving down the freeway your kid is in the back and this guy is tailgating you and then he roars by you and almost scrapes your car and you yell the hell is the matter with you i got a kid in the car don't do that then you realize that while you're yelling, you're going to miss your exit. So you go, you cross three different lanes <laughs> and everyone starts honking right. and you say, give me a break. I got a kid. Come on. I had to. And that in one minute, you're both Jesus and Hitler. Right. <laughs> so the way to at least understand Madoff a little bit more than you might have just from the headlines was, and you weren't going to talk to him, but you could talk to other people. So who were some of the other people that you well, chose to... First of all, the most important thing was to do, I did All My Sons by Arthur Miller. Mm-hmm. And All My Sons is the story of Bernie Madoff. He just wrote it in 1948 or whatever mm-hmm. he did. He, he wrote America into existence after the Second World War. And All My Sons is the story of Bernie and I played it on stage and came to know Bernie Madoff didn't start out to be a criminal. He started out to be a businessman like my father and everyone else on, in Bayside. And then you come to a fork in the road. Meyer Lansky described it. He, he described the moment when Bronfman and Kennedy went one way, but he stayed the other way uh-huh. and that's the fork in the road and Bernie Madoff had that moment and then he not only had the moment he he had that same thing that Iago has in Othello when he looks up in the go- at the gods and says 
Now this is fun. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing this until they're dead. Right. <laughs> and and he was just talking about innocent people. You know, he was going to destroy them because he could. Right. So you make the series with Blythe, with Charles Grodin, a whole great cast, and comes out, and the reaction has pretty much been, even people, most people really liked it overall. Even the people that didn't really like it thought you were great. So how was that to get that kind of feedback? And then I know you do have some frustrations about the way that it's been sort of handled by the network. Well, um, I've been told by my agent and by Brianna (laughs) and by everybody that I really... Um, should start talking about how beautiful the bird life is in this area. <laughs> so um, right. let me say that this piece was born in the news division of ABC, and we thought that that was a great plus. But in fact, they don't make movies. They don't market movies, and they don't know or care how to do that. And the people who do at ABC didn't. And one of them, who was a big producer for the show, was quoted one day as saying, well, we really dropped the ball on this one. And they did. And dropping the ball on this one meant dropping the ball on any actor, writer, or director who wanted a chance at being... Uh, acknowledged by his peers and that's what an Emmy nomination is or an Oscar nomination to be recognized by your peers I want it and I would think everyone in the show wanted it and you're saying you didn't feel that they got behind that effort right and also there are things like not to harp on but like standards and practices and things where we're not from what I read like even something stupid Bernie Madoff shouldn't smoke a Cigar, yeah. even if he actually smoked a cigar, because right. that might damage people. Meanwhile, we're telling the story of a guy who did a lot of worse things than smoking. And I said, cigar. Bernie Madoff should smoke 10 cigars at once. Right. <laughs> Expedite the process. <laughs> yeah, because standards and practices may work for situation comedies in primetime. It did not apply, or should not have applied, mm-hmm. for the story of Bernie Madoff. And they actually told us we couldn't name the banks or the financial institutions that had already been named as culpable and known. We couldn't name them. Why? Because they might sue us. And I said, excuse me, the last people on the face of the <laughs> earth who would ever sue ABC are the are the institutions that have already been named right. because they would have to open their books. Right. And the fact is that the whole street knew what Bernie Madoff was doing. And there are famous organizations and institutions now who paid fines that didn't amount to a hill of beans. And they went right on, and they are operating now. 
I'm not going to name them because Brianna will hit me in the back <laughs> of my head. And so that's why we said in the movie that I operated the biggest Ponzi scheme in history right. within the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. So it looked like you were having a fun time just biting into a character this meaty. Forget about what he is like as a person or whatever. It was a, seems like a great part that you made as great as it could be. Great response. Are you now back acting? Or is this going to be just a you know occasional thing? Are we going to see a lot more of this? Uh, I have to act. <laughs> I have to act. I have to do the thing I love mm -hmm. um, because I got to feed my family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I'm also doing this other thing, which is um, I'm writing a book about civics. I'm writing a small little bullet of a book. That's great. And uh, I'm writing that with the help of a, a, a growing bunch of history teachers in the East, and with the help of the Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden. <laughs> That's great. And he said, he said once to an entrepreneur who said, oh, there's no problem with ISIS. We, we can just take care of them militarily. And I had been saying, ISIS is here now. And uh, Bob, this Navy SEAL said, excuse me, there is no military response to ISIS. The only thing that accomplishes is the creation of more terrorists and the killing of innocent people. The only way to fight ISIS is through ideas. And what Richard is saying is exactly correct. The ideas that created the government of this country, it was said by better than anyone ever said it, by Alexis de Tocqueville. In 1837, he said, America is the only country in the history of the world that is connected only by ideas. There is no common religion, no common caste, no common class, no common ancestral achievement, no common crime. There is only the ideas of the Enlightenment which must be taught to each generation, and if it is not taught to each generation, they are not bound. Well... Welcome to America Unbound, because there's not a sector in this country that feels any connection or responsibility for any other sector. Right. And the financial industry is at the top of the list of those who either will burn in hell or be responsible for the end of this nation. Well... Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see. We'll see. But let me just thank you so much for this. I can can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you.